Welcome to the Green Investor Podcast powered by Investopedia. I'm Caleb Silver, the Editor-in-Chief of Investopedia and your host on our journey into what it means to be a green investor today. This episode is dropping right in the middle of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is prompting a huge spike in fossil fuel prices and other commodities. Of course, the human toll of the conflict is more important than any of that, but we're going to focus on our area of inquiry and hope this invasion ends soon and ends peacefully. On the show today, we're going to get into the impact of the invasion on oil prices, the significance of the fossil fuel industry in today's political environment, and the UN's latest report on climate change. We also have a fascinating conversation lined up for you with Megan Twing Eastman, who's the Managing Director and Editorial Director for ESG and Climate Research at MSCI, a key player in ESG ratings and index creation. That's all coming up. But first, let's set some ground rules for this podcast. And this podcast, as always, is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. We will not make recommendations to buy, sell, or hold a particular security or asset, although we may discuss financial products with our guests. Some of our guests may invest in the securities mentioned on this podcast. Some of our guests may sell or market securities mentioned on this podcast, but all listeners should do their own research or consult with their financial advisor or broker before making any investment decisions. Let's do the news, and it is moving quickly. MSCI ESG Research, remember that name, downgraded the ESG government rating of Russia from triple B to B, the second lowest rating with a negative outlook with immediate effect this week. Prior to the invasion of Ukraine, Russia's political governance score was already assessed as being weak under the three categories of stability and peace, political rights and civil liberties, and governance effectiveness. Using the Sovereign Watch methodology, MSCI reduced these scores further in response to Russia's actions in Ukraine and now place it in the very severe category. In addition, MSCI initiated very severe Sovereign Watch assessments for Russia's economic environment and financial governance categories of the social and governance pillars. Germany plans to rapidly accelerate the expansion of wind and solar power, bringing forward a target to generate almost all the country's electricity from renewable sources by 15 years to the year 2035. The Economy Ministry, which also oversees energy and climate policy, proposed new legislation this week that aims to roughly triple the annual additions from onshore wind and solar facilities. Offshore wind capacity is set to more than double. Remember, 40% of Germany's oil and natural gas imports come from Russia, so recent events may have triggered this acceleration. The European Union is poised to announce a strategy of weaning itself off of Russian gas, part of an ambitious energy plan that includes cutting overall fossil fuel use 40% by the year 2030. It's not going to be easy. The EU derives just over 20% of its total energy from gas, and around 40% of that comes from Russia. But the EU may actually indirectly import more than those figures. Certain industrial sectors in Europe, like ammonia and fertilizer production, are wholly dependent on gas. And there are large differences across the continent. Sweden barely uses any gas and none comes from Russia. The Netherlands gets almost 40% of its energy from gas, but not much of that comes from Russia. Central and Eastern European countries are the most exposed so far, especially Germany. Europe has just been through a winter of major disruptions in gas supplies. Gas prices more than tripled in the final three months of 2021 causing electricity prices to spike in the process. The war in Ukraine has only added to those increases. 
Several major oil and gas multinational companies have exited or plan to exit their operations and partnerships with Russia. Shell announced on Monday that it will cut ties with the Russian state-owned energy giant Gazprom. BP said last Sunday it will sell its shares in Russian state firm Rosneft. This is a pretty loud signal that even though Western countries have not sanctioned Russian energy companies, businesses no longer see operation in Russia as a safe investment. On Tuesday, Total Energies said it would no longer provide capital for new projects in Russia, but did not say it would halt current production. Gazprom's and Rosneft's London-listed stocks suffered major losses earlier this week, losing 42% and 53% respectively. Just for some historical context here, Western energy companies flooded into Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. In 2020, Russia was the world's third largest oil producer behind the United States and Saudi Arabia. Its 10.5 million barrels per day accounts for 11% of the world's oil production. Peabody Energy, the biggest U.S. coal producer, is expanding into clean energy. The St. Louis-based company is forming a joint venture with Riverstone Credit Partners and Summit Partners Credit Advisors to develop utility-scale solar projects on land around retired coal mines, according to a statement from the company earlier this week. The move is mostly symbolic for Peabody, which has been mining coal since its founding in 1883. Peabody characterized the decision as a way to generate new revenue sources and did not disclose how much it was investing in the effort. The company's primary focus will continue to be coal. The United Nations-backed Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC for short, released its third report on climate change with two additional reports expected before the end of the year. Researchers in the latest volume focused on the unpreparedness of nations to cope with climate instability and the impacts from higher temperatures now at 1.1 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Among the findings in the 3,600-page report, the effects of melting glaciers are thawing permafrost in some areas and are approaching irreversibility. Half of the world is already living with severe water scarcity during part of the year. Worldwide rise in heat-related illnesses and death with more foodborne and infectious diseases can be expected without adaptation. Agricultural productivity has slowed, and weather extremes have put millions of people's food security at risk. In land ecosystems, as many as 14% of animal species studied will likely face a very high risk of extinction at a warming level of 1.5 degrees Celsius. Bringing temperatures back down after passing 1.5 degrees Celsius is an extremely difficult endeavor, according to the report, and would still leave potentially irreversible damage. We'll link to the report in the show notes, but please don't print it. It is heavy. While ESG has become a very popular investing thing among investors over the past decade, the past year has brought into questions what ESG really means, how it's measured, and how to evaluate companies based on ESG criteria. Central to that question is whether or not environmental, social, and governance criteria are about a company's behavior or about its bottom line. Simply put, are ESG ratings just another scorecard for judging what a company does and its impact on the planet, its employees, and its customers, or yet another measuring stick to measure one company against another. MSCI was one of the original creators of ESG ratings, and they are widely cited and used across the investing landscape, but not without controversy as more investors pile into this theme. We're going to unpack what MSCI's ESG ratings are and what they're not with Megan Twing Eastman. She's the Managing Director, Editorial Director for ESG and Climate Research at MSCI, and thanks so much for joining us on The Green Investor. Thanks, Caleb. Great to be here. So let's get right to it. What's behind MSCI's ESG ratings? What really are they intended to do? Yeah, so an MSCI ESG rating is fundamentally a measurement of a company's long-term resilience to financially relevant environmental, social, and governance risks. So very much in that financial relevance camp. 
It's a global industry relative model, which means that we're looking at companies in comparison to other companies in the same industry around the world, developed and emerging markets. And what we're looking at there is the most financially relevant risks for each industry, which you can imagine can be quite different if you're looking, say, at a mining company, they need to pay a lot of attention to things like toxic emissions and worker health and safety and relations with the surrounding community. But those aren't the most significant issues at all for, say, an internet services company. You know, They've got to be thinking much more about privacy and data security and talent management and that sort of thing. So our MSCI ESG ratings are looking at different issues for different industries, depending on what's most likely to materialize in ways that affect a company financially. I read your paper on this and and you have a very good example. You just gave two, but semiconductors, which are so important. We call those the transport to the 21st century. We need them for absolutely everything, for the conversation we're having, for our refrigerators, for our cars, for everything else. But an ESG rating for a semiconductor company, like you said, very different from a mining company, very different from an internet services company or a beverage company. Let's just unpack semis for a second because I know our listeners understand those well. Yeah, so if we're looking at semiconductors, that that actually is a a good way into another point I was going to mention, which is that we're looking at what's most important for the industry, but also at the individual companies because they've got different business models, right? So if you look at computer chips, semiconductors, you've got companies that own their own fabs and they're doing all of the manufacturing from start to finish. They're hugely water intensive. They are massive investments, billions of dollars to build a new one. So it's not not easy to just pick it up and move it somewhere else. And then you've got other companies in the same industry that are just licensing IP and somebody else is making the chips. And so you can imagine that the risks that they're facing look really quite different from one to the next. And the way you need to think about it as an investor, again, is quite different. So we might say water stress, really important to the semiconductor industry. Look at Taiwan over the last year that there was a drought and it interfered with manufacturing. And, you know, we're feeling that partly along with other things with the global supply chain and a difficulty to get rental cars in the UK where I live. So it's very connected. But that risk is not affecting all the companies within the industry equally. And consequently, what those individual companies need to do to manage the risk is also different. So, you know, if you're one of those companies with huge fabs in Taiwan facing water shortages, that's very different than if you're a company based in California that's just licensing IP and doesn't have a lot of employees, much less manufacturing facilities. And I know from having used your ratings and and your ratings tools that if I put in a company like Taiwan Semiconductor or NVIDIA, very popular stock here, very popular company, I'll get a different rating and a different reading because the way they operate is very different, right? That's right. And so what we're trying to measure with the ratings is not just what kind of impact are they having on the world, but in fact, how are these issues coming back? How could they come back to bite the company in ways that would affect profitability or valuation or volatility, things like that down the road? So in that respect, you're really creating a tool for investors to evaluate company performance and what a company's performance might be given those risks. Do I put that the right way? That is exactly right. And this is for a use case in the investment world that we describe as ESG integration, which is really about incorporating this kind of financially relevant information that that in a way just happens to be about environmental or social governance issues. It's basically about making sure as an investor that you're not missing important information that could affect your financial outcomes down the road as you make your investment decisions. And that could be positive information or negative information about any company, but that's really what you're solving for. But there are other things investors want ESG information for, and it's important not to mix those up. 
because you want to make sure you're using the right kind of information, the right kind of tools for the job. If you're looking to hammer a nail, you want you want a hammer, you don't want to drill, but there are other things you might want to drill for. Great point and great analogy. So this is the green investor. We're interested in environmentally sensitive investing or folks that want to invest along with their environmental conscience. And I know that's part of your ratings, but let's get into the climate-specific initiatives that MSCI helps screen for and how you're helping investors screen companies in and out of their portfolio or make decisions based on those ratings. Can you take us through some of that? Absolutely. So even within the climate space, thinking about the climate transition, climate risk, climate impact, there are a lot of different questions that investors might have to which ESG information, climate information is going to provide an answer. They're, they're going to have different purposes or objectives. So just to like list off a few things, you might think, do you want to know today's carbon footprint and how a company stacks up compared to its peers today? Do you want to know what its path looks like to 2050 and one and a half degrees of warming or a net zero scenario? Because those might be really different things. Are you more focused on risk, you know, company value, when what might happen to company value as a result of its exposure to physical or transition risk as climate change manifests? Or, you know, maybe you're thinking about clean technologies. You want to invest in solutions. That's a really different exercise than trying to identify companies that own fossil fuel reserves or that have high emissions, something like that. So there's lots of different kinds of information you could be looking at. And so you really need to think through, what am I solving for here? What is it that I actually want to know? Find the right information and then think about what you want to do with it. You know, Do you want to point your money toward today's leaders, the companies that are best positioned right now? Or you know, maybe you're focused on the potential up-and-comers, the companies that are not that close to being ready for one and a half degree warming rise today, but they're on their way and they need help to get there. Or maybe you want to engage companies that are really lagging and try to push them to do better. Or maybe you want to withhold capital from those companies and, and plug it into the companies that are inventing the clean tech solutions we're going to need for tomorrow. MSCI can help with all of those different things. We have, of course, data sets and assessments and so on, but it really is important in working with investors for us to understand what it is they're actually trying to do and then match up the right kind of data for that. And the investors you're talking about are, in large part, institutional investors moving tens and hundreds of billions of dollars around the world into their portfolios. But individual retail investors like me and our listeners, they can get onto your ratings and they can plug in for those certain variables just the way I would if I was doing a stock screener for another industry, whether I care about profitability, whether I care about revenue growth, or if I care about these actual ESG issues. This is a tool to help you do that. And folks, we'll link to MSCI's tools so you can check them out for yourself because they're pretty fascinating. Same thing for funds. Right. Funds want to do the same thing. They have their criteria for investing. We do rate funds as well. Great point. Okay. So what's missing in the industry? MSCI was early into this game, but what's missing in the industry in terms of climate-related tools and products? Because that's kind of what we're focused on here that MSCI is maybe helping to develop or that you think we're going to need given what is happening with climate change. Right. So things have been moving very fast over the last couple of years. I say this as someone who's been in this field for two decades plus now, that the rate of change in what investors are trying to do and what research houses like MSCI are trying to do and industry organizations like GFANS, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, there's just been a lot of action over the last year or two. So a lot of things are, have been developed that didn't exist even a year ago, and I think we're going to see a good deal more of that over the next couple of years. 
But if I were to highlight a couple things where I think collectively we need more and MSCI is trying to contribute here, I'd say we need more convergence around forward-looking climate metrics, both in the methodology, but also in market practice and adoption. Because as I alluded to earlier, carbon footprints are useful to show you where you are today, whether that's your portfolio or an individual company or whatever, but they don't tell you what kind of track you're on. They don't tell you where you're going to be in a decade or three decades. So, we need companies to transition their business models or the whole climate transition just isn't going to happen. So we need companies to transition their business models and we need metrics as investors to make it easy to see who's working on it and making progress and who's not. And so there are really key roles here for a lot of the organizations that have come together, whether it's GFANS or the Science-Based Targets Initiative or the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. There's a lot going on. But there's still also not a ton of agreement yet. And so I think we need to see more convergence there. MSCI launched a few months ago a metric called implied temperature rise, which is designed along these lines. And it's designed based strictly on guidance from the TCFD, really trying to to make this almost something in, in service of the public needs as well as investors' needs here. And what it's trying to measure is where a company is going to be if if the whole economy behaved like this company seems to be behaving, what would global warming be? How much would it be? And, and that's expressed as a temperature. So that's the sort of thing. There are others developing other metrics, and we're going to need to come around to more convergence on those. So moving off that, a second thing I, I would mention is regulation. So this is not specifically a, a tool or a product, but dealing with the climate crisis is going to require system level change, and that's got to involve regulators. And we need investors and companies. We need investors to, to influence corporates and we need investors to influence both corporates and regulators to push things forward and to make it possible for companies and investors to take the action that's needed. So MSCI is closely engaged with regulators around the world. We've really been staffing up on this topic specifically, and especially as regards disclosures that could be required of companies or investors or financial products. But we're also very open with our clients and with the market on the point that decarbonizing a portfolio isn't enough. It isn't enough for the world, and it isn't actually enough even to protect your own investments because we need the entire global economy to decarbonize. And investors have got a really big role to play there in pushing companies and in pushing regulators. And of course, this is at the core of what we do at MSCI ESG Research in terms of serving investors. So if investors are looking to identify companies to influence, to allocate capital, to withhold capital, to engage, et cetera, you know, we've, we've got all sorts of things from fossil fuel reserves and utility fuel mix data through some of the other things I was just talking about, implied temperature rise, carbon reduction targets, uh, environmental management and oversight, all that stuff. Our listeners know that we've been speaking to Engine Number 1 and we talked to Follow This. These are companies or organizations that are trying to influence companies from the inside, whether they're taking an active role like an Engine Number 1 or they're buying green shares like, uh, like uh, folks are doing with Follow This. But in many cases, they're using your tools and your ratings as part of the argument for their position in these companies, which is why these ratings are so important. And you just mentioned a ton of acronyms in this industry. And we, we do a little segment on this show called Unpack the Acronym, just because it is chock full of them. It's alphabet soup out there. Very difficult for individual investors to follow this and to keep track of the things that they think are the most important. So maybe if we did a little unacronyming of the industry, it might be helpful 
as well. Let's talk about some of the industries. Obviously, big oil is often targeted with ESG criticism about ESG or sustainability. And for good reason, they're digging fossil fuels out of the ground. And that is definitely contributing to climate issues. So if I go onto MSCI's ratings, I can compare oil companies against another and some may score higher, which for the individual investor may not be that intuitive. How could you even put a company like this in your ratings? But to your point, you have to because these are investable vehicles and there are criteria that you can measure a BP against a Chevron if you wanted to. Am I right? Yes, you absolutely could. And in fact, we put out on a a quarterly basis a report we call the Net Zero Tracker, which looks at companies in the MSCI Acqui Index, one of our large global indexes. And it'll stack up, you know, the companies with the highest emissions, the companies with the lowest emissions, the companies with the best new targets, the companies that have added new disclosures, that sort of thing. And uh, I think it was in the last round of the tracker that came out. Uh, there's another one due out soon, but in the prior round, we actually did a side by side of Shell and BP looking at their implied temperature rise. And it was a, this great, useful illustration of two companies that today both are extracting fossil fuels. They're extremely carbon intensive in their business, but they're on pretty different tracks towards the future as of now. Now that could change. But if you look at that implied temperature rise, you can really see different paths over the next couple of decades that those companies might be taking. So if you're an investor that's got the sort of constraints that means that you can't just exclude an entire sector, or maybe you don't want to exclude an entire sector, you want to say, you know, we're going to need energy. And so let's invest in the companies that are really making that effort to transition their business away from fossil fuel and into things that will be more sustainable rather than just cut off the whole sector. Super important at a time like now, because energy stocks, as folks know, have been some of the best performers over the last several months. So either you're excluding them from your portfolio altogether, and you're missing that upside, or you're finding the companies that may fit best with the things you care about as an investor. And maybe they do belong because they are doing the right thing. But a lot of that remains to be seen because the energy industry and the complex itself has so much work to do to change its business model if it is going to participate in the reduction of global warming. So this theme has evolved a lot in the the past decade, ESG and, and, and related themes. Where do you see it going in the next 10 years? What do you think are going to be the most important focuses for MSCI and for investors in general? That's a great question, because if I look back just 10 years to where we were in in 2012, it's kind of incredible that it's only been 10 years because so much has changed. And I think the pace of change in this industry is increasing and and is still increasing. So, you know, we're going to see new issues emerge. We're going to see existing issues that are a little more at the periphery today that are going to become central and material probably faster than we think. And one of the things I have in my mind there is biodiversity and nature and and how integrated that is with the whole climate crisis situation. But I also think if we focus more on climate, that the way we look at and measure and understand climate risks and the climate transition is going to continue to develop again, probably even faster than it has been. And of Of course, in another 10 years, we're going to be much farther along the road to that warmer future, and we're going to have a really good sense of how well we've done at the goals that we're setting today. So it it could be quite a different picture then. But more generally, I think over the next decade, we're going to see that ESG and climate information in the investment process are unavoidable for 
virtually all investors and especially climate change, because we're really past the point of whether you believe in it or not. The facts are there. The research is done. And the numbers speak for themselves in many ways about the relevance of these issues to financial performance and risk. So I think there's that, that it's really going to become unavoidable, even for the skeptics. There's going to be a lot more regulation of the industry and of companies. And what we don't know yet is whether those regulations are going to generally converge globally or whether we're going to see more fragmentation. And so as we think about MSCI's role in in talking to regulators and trying to help them understand the institutional investor space and investors themselves engaging with regulators, this is going to be an important thing to see whether the regulations end up really kind of marching in the same direction or getting more specialized and fragmented in a way that's going to create more burden for investors and, and make it harder to execute. And then finally, I think, you know, you alluded at the beginning, Caleb, to the growing pains that our industry is undergoing at at present and the the questions that are being raised as more people get into it. And I do think that over the next several years, we're going to get past that period because, you know, today there's a ton of interest in ESG and there's a ton of interest in investing for the climate, incorporating climate change considerations. But there's also a lot of misconceptions and misperceptions about what this all is and how it works. And I think that people are going to really probably pretty rapidly come to better understand a lot of the things that we've been talking about today in this interview about different kinds of approaches and objectives and constraints, different motivations and so on. And so they're going to be able to come back and look at the right tool or the right tools for the job and you know, at the risk of straining the metaphor to, to not object when their hammer doesn't do a good job of drilling holes. So that's where I would see things going, a lot more focus on, on climate change and getting more sophisticated really rapidly a lot of development in the regulatory space. And I'm an optimist on this, getting past the current kind of misconceptions, misperceptions, confusion in the ESG investing space to where it's just better understood and more mature. Education is such a key component of that. So if there's one thing you could point our listeners to that they should read, folks just getting into this for the first time, a primer, a report, whether it comes from MSCI or elsewhere, that you would just recommend to investors just to get that fundamental understanding, where would you point them? I think if we're talking about climate change and the intersection of climate change and investing, I would point you to MSCI's Net Zero Knowledge Hub, uh, which is a free resource available to anybody on the public. You can just Google that. And there's a lot of information there and kind of going step by step, thinking about how to align investment portfolios better with less climate change rather than more. Beyond that, we do actually on our own website have a lot of basic information about an introduction to what is ESG and what are different ways of thinking about it. So that might be the first place. And if you're more interested in kind of the big ideas and thematic concepts and where things might be going, every year we put out a report called ESG Trends to Watch for the coming year. And so some of the ideas I've just mentioned actually were in this year's report, which we published in December. So again, you can just Google that MSCI ESG Trends to Watch 2022. There's a paper, but there's also some cool interactive exhibits and videos and so on that I think are pretty accessible to a person who's not that deeply enmeshed in this industry. Great recommendations. You can Google that, folks, but we're going to put them in the show notes to make it easy for you. So check out The Green Investor on Investopedia for a transcript of this interview and links to these reports. They're very useful, and I've read them both. Thanks so much to Megan Twing Eastman, the Managing Director and Editorial Director for ESG and Climate Research at MSCI. We really appreciate you joining The Green Investor. Thanks so much for having me. 
It's time for Green Facts, our chance to dig into facts and figures about green investing that are worth noting. And this week, we are focusing on a slowing of money inflows into ESG exchange-traded funds and products. According to ETFGI, which tracks such things, ESG ETFs and exchange-traded products took in $9.81 billion during January, which is lower than the $19.76 billion gathered in January of 2021. Total assets invested in ESG ETFs and ETPs decreased by 3.2% from $392 billion at the end of December 2021 to $379 billion. A couple of things to keep in mind here. In January of 2021, nearly every sector and every theme in the stock market saw massive inflows as investors rushed in to buy the recovery trade. Cut to January of 2022 and flows into stocks and ETFs slowed to a trickle amid rising interest rates and inflation, except for oil and energy stocks, which have been the best performance in the stock market for nearly six months. Rising oil prices attracted a lot of new money back into the fossil fuel sector, and it's been about the only place to make money in the market this year. But the slowing of funds into ESG themes is notable given how popular it has been over the past two years. We're going to keep a close eye on this statistic going forward. It's time for a little Unpack the Acronym, where we deconstruct the alphabet soup surrounding green investing, which is a never-ending process. This week's term is the GIN, G-I-I-N, which stands for the Global Impact Investing Network, and it calls itself the Global Champion of Impact Investing, dedicated to increasing its scale and effectiveness around the world. How does the GIN work with investors to accelerate the scale and effectiveness of impact investing? Good question. Well, according to the website, by convening impact investors to facilitate knowledge exchange, highlighting innovative investment approaches, building the evidence base for the industry, and producing valuable tools and resources, the GIN seeks to accelerate the industry's development through focused leadership and collective action. On its website, the GIN says it focuses on reducing barriers to impact investment so more investors can allocate capital to fund solutions to the world's most intractable challenges. It will do this, it says, by building critical infrastructure and developing activities, education, and research that help accelerate the development of a coherent impact investing industry. Who belongs to the GIN? Its investor council is made up of some very big family foundations, like the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation and the Margaret A. Cargill Philanthropies, as well as some very influential money managers like Calvert Investments, Morgan Stanley, and Apollo Capital Management. Make no mistake, my friends, big money is in this space. What they do with that money is key to the future of green investing. We'll say goodbye this week and today with environmental history, and today we're going to celebrate the birthday of the Rivers and Harbors Act of 1899. It was the first environmental law in the U.S. passed by Congress on March 3rd, 1899. The act is primarily aimed at preservation of navigable waters, but under Section 13, throwing garbage and refuse into navigable waters except with a Corps of Engineers permit becomes a violation of law. Violators could be fined up to $2,500 and imprisoned up to one year. One exception is for liquid sewage from streets and sewers. I'm glad we got that cleaned up, and it's kind of shocking that the Rivers and Harbors Act of 1899 is only 123 years old. Our poor rivers have been through a lot. Thanks for joining us this week on The Green Investor. As always, we're going to post a transcript of our conversation with our guest with Megan Twing Eastman in addition to links of the reports we mentioned on the show. You can find all that at investopedia.com slash the green investor podcast. If you haven't already, rate us, review us, and share us with a friend. And also send us some feedback at podcast at investopedia.com. We love feedback. Keep it green, and we'll talk again in a couple of weeks. Hey.